Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney, over there Steve. Balls. <laughs> and uh, today we are back hitting the books uh, with a classic of detective fiction, Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man. Balls. Balls, yep, Steve's going to be saying that a lot. So, tell us a little bit about this classic detective story. Well, what would you like to know, Rodney? When was it published? It was published in the early 30s. 1933. It was uh, published in the December 1933 issue of Red Book. And then appeared in 1934, January, as a, its own novel. And, of course, this book stars the beloved characters of Nick and Nora Charles. Yes. When the book was adapted into a film starring William Powell and Myrna Loy, uh, spawned, like, six films, of which Dashiell Hammett worked on the screenplay for three, I believe. It, yeah, it was definitely... He made a lot of money off of The Thin Man. It was his last published novel. Um, but... He made a lot of money off of this um, as consultant to MGM, screenwriter to MGM, uh, rights owner. Uh, he, he he made a lot of money off of this. It was one of the earliest um, film franchises. Mm -hmm. You know, that named something from the 30s that had um, six films. That's not a serial? <laughs> Yeah, there are there aren't many, um, and that that goes I guess yeah. to the popularity of uh, the characters of Nick and Nora because not only were there like six films, uh, there was a television series uh, and uh, a radio uh, drama. Yeah, people really liked their Nick and Nora, and it's understandable. It was the '30s; it was the height of the depression uh, when this was published. And they are, you know, everything everyone else wasn't. Mm -hmm. Mainly wealthy. Right. Right. Fabulously wealthy. Yes. Nick Charles is your classic hard-boiled private eye. He was a, uh, a detective for the Pinkertons, much like Hammett was himself. I, I, I think he's kind of... X hard boiled private X, eye. X hard boiled. I don't think he yeah, was hard boiled. Uh, then he think, went bad in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there's a little background on the character of Nick Charles. Like you were saying, he was a detective, in the Pinkertons, um, a, a good one mm -hmm. with a reputation. Mm -hmm. Um. But unlike you know someone like Marlowe. Or Spade. Uh, the people, or Spade, the people he sends up the river, you know, like him. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how hard boiled he was, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he was hard boiled at one point. Mm -hmm. Now he's retired. He married into a ton of money. Yep. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with being a detective. Nope. He's retired from that but life. He kind of and the story of the Thin Man, it's called the Thin Man uh, because the um, the off-screen character who's a suspect 
of the murder is a very thin man. Mm-hmm. Called the thin man. Right. Um, but he's retired and he's looking into these murders and he doesn't want to do it. Right. He and just happens to he know doesn't everybody. Take it, he doesn't take it seriously. No. But his reputation precedes him and people, other people take it, take him seriously. He doesn't. And that's, I think that's the charm of the thin man, why it was so successful. You have like this, he's almost a, what do you call a weekender? Right, right. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's the professional who's doing what countless, it's almost, it's almost as if Hammett is satirizing Agatha Christie to a little bit, you know, <laughs> in, in that. Yeah, he, he he has become the character in a lot of those British detective novels instead of the that quintessential, you know, American detective. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't call him hard boiled. And now while the movie and we're we're not really focusing on the movie here, but the movie takes great pains to have like these noir um instances i wouldn't even call the movie very noir but it does have like noir qualities to it mm-hmm. i think the only thing noir in this book is the patois right <laughs> there's a lot of of um you know slang being thrown around like balls a lot of a lot of like uh, 1930s you know underground slang like you don't get drunk you get tight uh, stuff like that. And that kind of is noir-ish to have that kind of, um, you know, uh, delving into, into you know, different dialects mm-hmm. to add, add a little bit of realism to it. But other than that, I, you know, it, it there's not a lot of action. There's a couple of scenes of action, but not a lot of it nope. compared to like the Mal- Maltese Falcon. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly it's, it's, uh, solving, solving a, uh, case through socializing. Yep. Yep. Uh, I believe and, uh, and some people getting who, tight, right. Some people who, uh, uh, you know, critics of this book, people who, who study the Dashiell Hammett and whatnot, uh, refer to it as a comedy of manners in addition to a detective story. It is. It, de- it definitely has that, that appeal to it pride and prejudice and murder now let's let's talk about or the maybe, oh go ahead or maybe the great gaspian murder now we talked a little bit about nick charles let's talk about the other half of the equation um of which you know makes this book actually work and that is nora uh the the wealthy socialite half nick um who really enjoys uh, palling around with her husband into these seedy parts of town. <laughs> and his low-life friends. And his, yeah, I mean, she hates all of her society friends, but every time they meet one of uh, his criminal acquaintances, either somebody he's put up, sent up the river, or uh, has has gotten in an altercation with, or, or, or something, there, she always finds them so charming. And you know yes. you mentioned you mentioned the action you know not being there. It, 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 a lot of it comes with the fact that 
Nick Charles's reputation precedes him, and from what you can gather from all the uh, gangsters and street level folks, gangsters and cops and stuff that that he's associating with, he was a tough cookie, and nobody yeah, really I, wanted I, to fuck get, with him. You definitely get the impression that he can uh, that he can take care of himself, mm-hmm. um, but it never comes out and says it. You know, it's it's always hinted at, like when um, what what the the one guy who owned the speakeasy, mm-hmm. um, Studsy Burke, Studsy Burke, yeah, Studsy Burke uh, was put up by him and claimed he got lucky. I shouldn't have led with my right. And later on, there's an altercation, and Studsy has to bounce some guy, some guy, and. Uh, Nick Charles makes the observation that he still leads with this right. Yep. yep. Implying that he, if he needed to, he can take Studsy. Right. But, I, you know, that particular scene, it's like, it's almost like the two gangster guys, Studsy and uh, and the other lowlife, uh, they bounce that guy to keep Nick from fucking him up. <laughs> Cause uh, it's like, Shep Morelli? Yeah, Shep Morelli. Shep Morelli and, and Studsy, I mean, this guy comes up and threatens Nick, and then they just immediately bounce him uh, before Nick gets up. It's almost like, look, I don't want Nick to fuck you up, man. So we're doing this for it your could own be, good. Um, it also could have been because Nora was there, as was uh, Dorothy, mm-hmm. and and they didn't want to uh, have any trouble while classy ladies were like. That's right. That's true. Chivalry ain't dead. Um, yeah, so... Now, what about the actual third um, member of this duo? Astrid? Who is... Astra? Astra. The Astra. dog. An important... The dog plays a, a much... The dog plays a much bigger role in the movies than he does in this uh, in this book. Mm-hmm. But Astra is there. Right. Astra is very important because a lot of stuff revolves around them uh, getting home to Astra. It's like, oh, yep. Uh, our, <laughs> like four our in the morning. to leave. Yeah. Yeah. They, they definitely do not uh, keep a normal schedule. Um, no. They're both night owls. And, and, you know, it might be partially because of well, Nick's. They're um, on vacation. Well, yeah, it's Christmas time. This is definitely a Christmas book. Yeah, I mean they're they're on vacation from San Francisco in New York, which is uh, Nick's old stomping grounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're seeing all of her old friends, right? Who so they that, hate. That's that's kind of like this. Yeah, that's kind of the setup. And uh, well, I mean they hate them, but it does give you a kind of ready-made list of. Uh, suspects um you have her old you know society people and you have charles nick charles's old um criminal associates right so you have plenty of you know people who could have done it mm-hmm. now what begins the action though is the thin man uh a, a gentleman by the name of claude winant was actually a former client of Nick Charles. He he worked a case. No, Nick Charles was a Nick Charles was his was. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. 
Yeah, he worked the case. I should know this. And that's how the, yeah. the Winets are there. Uh, Winet was a, a, an inventor and made his fortune off of uh, smelting patents and things of that nature. And uh, the case he was involved in was a was a patent fraud case. Right. Uh, and really, you know, other than, you know, you sent me up the river, you know, occasionally, that's the only case that's ever really gone into some detail, but not a lot. As as Nick right. really doesn't focus on the past, um, doesn't let anybody really talk about the past when they're talking to him about things. He's like, "No, I just want to know what's ha- what you want to tell me right now." Yeah, I I live in the present. I don't care about what happened, but it'll make the rest of it makes. I don't care. Make it make sense right now. <laughs> right. I think one of the things that that sets this novel apart and makes it not noir is the treatment of all the things that actually go into a noir mm-hmm. uh, movie. Uh, because you have it all there, just not noir. Right. You have, um, you know, spousal abuse, you have incest, you have like all that shit. Right. Drug abuse. Uh, drug abuse. Um, you know, uh, uh, bloodlines of insanity that, you know, all that kind of stuff that, you know, you, you look in a novel and you expect to see Humphrey Bogart rolling up a cigarette, Mm. but you don't, you get Nick Charles. Nick Charles, who, how do you feel this morning? Terrible. I think I went to bed sober. Yeah. He doesn't, the thing, like, Nick Charles doesn't judge any of it. He just equally hates all of them, mm-hmm. I think. I think he's just, like, so disassociated himself from everything that it doesn't face him at all. Where you would have, like, uh, Marlo, uh, you know, Marlo, you, I don't care if you did it or not. Uh, my partner's my partner, and that means something. Mm-hmm. Nick Charles doesn't care. Right. Nick Charles is like, oh, you killed my partner? Yeah. Served him right. He was stupid. I hated him. <laughs> well, you like me, don't you? Uh, no. That, that's that's ice in my whiskey. Get it out of here. Right, right. Nick Charles is definitely a misanthrope. <laughs> yeah. It's like the only the only person he actually seems to have any concern for at all is Nora. And that's it. It's Nick and Nora and Astra, and that's their life. The rest of y'all can fuck yeah, right off. Yeah, but it's implied. It's it's also implied that he sleeps around on her. Yeah, it, it's implied, and, but you know, I'm not really sure that that's what it is. I think there's a degree of trust because you know, if you can cite an instance where it's implied that uh, he's sleeping around, uh, there's also a couple of uh, implications. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. It, 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 it's even possible that uh, they they actually have right. Or now, and given the nature of their relationship, it's also possible that they're just like giving each other shit. Right. That does that doesn't actually happen, and that's kind of their private in joke. Right. Because because we have uh, a couple of other women throwing themselves practically at Nick. Uh, in private and in front of Nora, and uh, he he resists the advances and uh, goes about his business, unlike yeah. you know some other private detectives. Right. 
or uh, people who are, you know, their peers. Mm-hmm. Because they hang out with the philandering bunch. They do. Uh, their their good friend, uh, I forget his name, but he shows up. He's he's like that uh, fifth wheel character who shows up uh, to to. Cart. Are you talking about Harrison Quinn? Yes, the one who carts Dory around so she can show up in their scene. <laughs> yes, he's, he's also their their stockbroker, right? Apparently, not a very good one. Um, and and he is definitely uh, cheating on his wife with. Uh, an underage girl. Yes. Now, just um, because I also recently rewatched the movie mm. um, to compare them, uh, a lot of this this stuff has been taken out of the film, mm-hmm. uh, which to me is it's kind of weird. But I guess this is right around when you had um, the the. What is it? The MPAA started rearing its head. Possibly. And there were, you know, films were being censored for content uh, more than than literature. Yeah, that's a possibility. Which always weirded me out. So I think like a lot of like you can't. I don't think you can have like philandering and incest and domestic abuse and everything in a film that's supposed to be a light comedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As opposed to a, a, a you know detective story, where you know it's it's harder. I guess it's harder to censor books at the time. Uh, Ulysses had just had that big trial for it being pornography, and it was ruled that it you know it wasn't. So I think there's like a precedent for for literature mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to film. And I think you you had more of a more of an open area with 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 writing fiction um and literature and don't get me wrong even though we look back at at um dashiell hammett these days as oh he was like a pulp writer right he wrote detective fiction he was actually at the time like considered uh one of the leaders of contemporary american letters so you have to remember that as well. Now it wasn't like yeah, he he wasn't H.P. Lovecraft, right? Right. <laughs> he he was like you know people recognize Dashiell Hammett. He was accepted as part of the American canon of letters mm-hmm. at at the time. Not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying at that time. Right. Right. I mean, if if. You know, he was like Stephen King, right? Right. right. He's like any any number of contemporary. Uh, you know, he's like a Michael Crichton or a James Patterson or something these days. Right. Yeah, it's commercial fiction, but there's these people are elevated to the really good at it. Yeah. And and that's that's kind of where where Hammett was. You know, you had the guys that were working. You know, cranking out. You know magazine art short stories and stuff like that and you had guys who right. were had already crossed over novelists well not only novelists but if you look at how this is written and without without giving anything away because mm-hmm. it is it's a delightful book mm-hmm. there are 
um, a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. And they're constructed to fit together well. Right. Um, it takes talent to be able to keep track of all that. I imagine his workspace just like had like the cork board with, you know, pin, pinned up, you know, threads and all that Pepe yeah. Silva shit. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're talking about, and it is a it is a complicated mystery with a lot of moving parts, a lot of red herrings, um, and, and I think I I think like a lot of mystery writers, Hammett had to have written that backwards, um, as as they say, uh, you're supposed to do, where you start with the solution, right, and then you work backwards to make it more complicated devise all the pl- spots where you can throw sus- of the actual purpose. Yeah, I'm sure he had to. He had to have. Um, it's just, it's too well well plotted out. Um, yeah, it was awfully I nice really... of them to uh, take, the, take the entirety of the last chapter to uh, just spell it out from beginning to end. This is what occurred. Well, and, I think and, and he kind of had to, right? I, and it's also it's also that's kind of the moment um, where where you you get to see how good of a detective Nick Charles is because he's been assembling this the whole book while pretending right. to be disinterested and and even just allowing himself to become a suspect at one point. Uh, just because he knows yeah, I, the guys involved and and he just you know he's he's kind of like like a lot like Sam Spade he is playing a game with all the other pieces in the puzzle it's like they're they're putting mm-hmm. together a jigsaw puzzle and Nick Charles is playing three-dimensional chess and and he is the smartest motherfucker in the room most of the time Especially when Nora's not, because <laughs> yeah. because Nora is extremely perceptive. Yeah, and it's and yeah, it's her is. her urging. He's he's ready to just say, "Yep, why it did it," and it was kind of her urging and and her insistence that why it had nothing to do with it that that kept well, Nick going a little, and then he I realized that would... she's right. Yeah, I think she just really wanted to see him work because I don't think she really ever got the chance to see him be Nick Charles' detective. Right, I think he was already retired when they Yeah, I don't know. But I, I just think just she urges him, she just leads him on. I, and I don't think at any point he ever really thought, well, that why not? Was absolutely guilty. Um, spoiler alert. Right. right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, I mean, we are talking but about I, a, a eighty-year-old book. <laughs> no, that's true, but it is a a mystery novel. So right. Right. I mean, well, we're not going to give away of... who done it, but but yeah, I mean, the whole that it is called the Thin Man because a lot of the the action revolves around people thinking that wine it right. Is the murderer? And well, all of it revolves and, around him. 
You know, he is the, right. the center of gravity upon which all the other people orbit. Right. So, and, and I like I, how I, he is off off page uh, most of the time, and how he becomes that uh, that looming a looming presence more than a character. Yeah, I don't know if he ever really looms. Well, as <laughs> much as as much as the background. tone of this book, you know. He's definitely in the background a lot, but there's there's ne- the thing is there's never a point where Nick Charles is like yeah he did it right. Um, as a matter of fact, fairly early, maybe halfway through the book, he basically says uh, if you bet on it, I'm gonna win. That he's not right. He, he tells that five will get you people. fifty. Twenty five will get you yeah. fifty. He tells that to two people that that he he. That he bet that he didn't do it. So mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think like the, the, the. I don't think anybody reading it really believes that why it did it. Right. Uh, because because it's narrated by Nick Charles, and you are pretty much you know forced into sharing his opinions. It's mm. true. And and there's at, at no point does he say, "Oh, he did it." Now he might have like put up his hands and half-heartedly said, "Okay, well, go and arrest him." Then, but it was always followed by, "If you can find him, right, right." So, because because the other refrain is, "Is no, I'm not, I'm not working this case. No, I'm not right. working this case." And and he's he's assembling everything together. And you know, like like I was, I made the three dimensional chess. Um, that that he does solve the crime without actually doing anything. It's all about it's all about making he's making sure that right people are there at the right time and and saying the right uh, words he, to the right person to get them in that position. Yes, there's at no point. Does um, does he actually do any actual legwork? Mm-hmm. He has everybody else <laughs> at all. He doesn't go into rooms and dust for prints. Um, there's a scene in the film mm-hmm. where they go into a uh, when it's old factory, right? Where he does right mm-hmm. in the film. It's it's Nick Charles who goes in there and makes the big discovery, right? In the book, the police do it. Right. He's at a party. Right. He's at a party, and, and the police <laughs> go do it because because he just makes that passing comment that, you know, all, all of these things are being directing us away from certain things, and things were not being pointed. Right. You know, like, and it's almost like, it's almost like you can imagine it in your head that, you know, he's, there's a what? picture of the place on the desk and he's like maybe we should like look at places or no maybe you should look at places where we're not being where our attention is not being directed toward look down look down and it's funny because he's pretty open with everyone about um a not working the case but b um the information he has Mm -hmm. He'll, he will, on one hand, say, oh, yeah, I won't tell anybody. On And then two scenes later, oh, yeah, it was so-and-so. He, he immediately he immediately goes and tells uh, the cops 
And then he goes and talks yeah. to uh, Wynant's ex-wife and tells her everything he just told the cops. Right. He, he, it's like you said, he's getting his information from all these different sources. Mm-hmm. And he's synthesizing and he's putting it all together. And I think his strength is he reads people really well. Yep. Yeah, I, I would say so. I would say so. He knows He knows when he, some people are telling the truth. He knows what to say to get certain reactions and stuff out of that. He, he's one of those kind of uh, investigators who, who really understands how the mind works, which I think but, but it's the not other, only... the, the, the Wynick son's fascination with him because apparently he's like a psychologist. Oh, yes, there's there's like... Yes, there's like some implied homosexuality. I forgot about that. Hmm. <laughs> Homosexual infatuation. Very salacious for the 30s. Right. Anyway, um, I don't think he only can tell when people are lying, but I think he can tell why people are saying what they're saying when they're lying. Mm-hmm. So he can like grab onto maybe not the events or the truth, but the direction that truth is coming from. Right. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. um, especially in his dealings with, um, with Mrs. Uh, Jorgensen, who is Wynett's ex-wife. Right. Who just basically can't tell the truth for her life depended on it. And honestly, at the end of the book, it kind of does. Right. Yeah, I think even he's talking about her at one point and and says that, you know, it, it's it's funny how uh, a person can lie all the time. And the person that lies all the time is the one who's most susceptible to being lied to. Yeah, <laughs> like, yep, definitely true. The, the person who's who's always trying to manipulate is the person who's easiest to manipulate, unless you're Nick Charles. Right. And then he just assumes that everybody's trying to play him. Yeah. So, uh, now, had, had you read this book before? Uh, no, this was actually my first time. As a, as a book? Right, as, as, a, as a book. Um, you know, I'm familiar with the characters. Like, I've seen uh, a few of the movies. But, uh, yeah, this is the first time I, I've really sat down and read the book. And I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I really enjoy the um, banter between Nick and Nora. They, that I, I love. I love the way they talk to each other. They're, they're so frank. And now, they're, they're did you remember? Well, well, go ahead. What was the last time you saw the film? Oh God. It had, had to have been a decade ago. So really it was like okay, coming so into this. Did you, did you remember the film? Well, okay. I, that's what I'm getting. Did, did you remember the film? Well, mm. like well enough to know the solution. No. I, I've completely okay. forgotten the solution. Okay. So it, it definitely, it was like a, now it was I'll a confess re- it that was... this is the second time mm-hmm. I've read through this book in the past couple of months. Cause I read it a couple of months ago. I had mentioned it to you and then you had said, Oh, let's do it. Right. So I reread it because you know, that was like in January. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I knew, um, uh, what was happening mm. and why things were happening. And that's why I mentioned earlier that it's just brilliant, brilliantly plotted out. Right. Did it surprise you uh, on the second because, reading? 
did what surprised me. The 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 reveal or the the, the resolution. Uh, no, or was I knew there, what was happening. Or was there a, a layer? <laughs> I, I knew of, it was happening. Right? Is there was there a layer? Of... No, the second the second reading to me was uh, the okay. That's where that happens. That's where that happens. Okay, <clears throat> that's why that's in there. Okay, so um, so so you started seeing uh, how the sausage was made. The patterns. Right. Yes, the patterns. I wanted to compare it, and this is, I don't know if this is true or not, but I suspect, I suspect it is. I think Gene Wolfe owes a big debt to Dashiell Hammett. Uh, I think a lot of people probably do, um, being, being where specifically, he was. Yes, and I know he, Dashiell Hammett, we have found out earlier, is Rodney's um, Azathoth. Yeah. <laughs> he is the, the insane center of your pop culture universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yo Jimbo was based on, on uh, Red Harvest, and um, Star Wars' working title was Blue Harvest. Right. So, <laughs> anyway. That aside, Gene Wolf, you've read a couple of Gene Wolf things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we did them on this show. The Land Across. Gene uh... Wolf. Yes. Gene Wolf's biggest, uh, I, I don't know if you call it strength. I call it a strength. Many people call it what the fuck, is that he uh, puts just enough information mm-hmm. to tease you with. And later on, it's going to come back in some other form and inform the action of what's going on presently. Mm-hmm. But he does it in a way where you are scratching your head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Until that happens, you're like, why did he eat cherries? <laughs> why was that mentioned in this book? <laughs> and then later on, it comes back, right? Right. Oh, I knew he had done this because I found cherry pits. And you're like, where the fuck did the cherry pits come from? But then when you reread it, you're like, oh, okay, that's what the cherries are all about. Mm-hmm. I think that style uh, is completely derived from this book. <laughs> or or, or Dashiell Hammett as a whole. Mm-hmm. Breadcrumbs. Uh, because... Because that's what he does. He, he, Dashiell Hammett will dangle something in front of you and then cut it off. Now, it's not as extreme as uh, when when Gene Wolfe does it, mm-hmm. but it's still there. Yeah. And to me, that's what makes it so interesting. It's not, it's not like a Sherlock Holmes story where, you know, it's this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Um, and some information was withheld. Right. From so Holmes can be brilliant. Right. So Holmes can be brilliant at the end. Right. Mm-hmm. This, everything is there. Uh, sometimes conclusions aren't drawn when you think they should be in text, but they're still in, in uh, Charles's head. Right. Right. And then eventually you find out what's going on. When you reread it, you get to see all that. And mm. it's the same. It's similar to uh, rereading Wolf when you can be like, oh, okay. 
Now I get it. You know, he, I, I uh, think I think he has a tell uh, when he's doing that. If, if you think to a lot of the long, the conversations where they have, where the note comparing sessions that he has with various characters, right? When mm-hmm. they get to a point where they ask him a question and he goes, I don't know, and he leaves, that's that's one of those spots where a conclusion will should have been drawn. Right. right. No, there's definitely a, a number of places in there where he's he's going through his reasoning and then stops. Right. And and Gene Wolfe takes it one step further um, to the point where it could be really maddening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, that's he, he has a different purpose in mind in his writing than Hammett does. Hammett's trying to tell good detective stories. Right. Gene Wolfe is telling detective stories disguised as science fiction and fantasy stories. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's the Thin Man. Well, probably I, I would say you know up there on greatest books of all time kind of list. We See, will never actually make one of those. Azathoth. Azathoth. Yes. Yes. Azathoth. Well, you know. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I have a little habit of taking something that are uh, seemingly useless information and making them a big. So, so he is kind of my as the source of everything. Yep, you're just a blind piper. Yep, just I'm just playing Dashiell Hammett's tune, except it's off key, and that does a it for blind tone deaf piper. Yeah, with no lips. Uh, that's it for us. Uh, what are we doing next time, Steve? Uh, death in space. Death in space. Oh my goodness! It's uh, one of the newest RPGs. Space. It's more bored with space. That's right. It's it's from Free League and the Stockholm Cartel, and that's what you need to know until we dig into it. And until next time. Go fuck yourselves. Yeah, we need to get a better catchphrase. Um, All right. Balls. Balls. Till next time, balls.